what a day, what a month, what a life, what a week. Today, we have a very special two-part edition of What a Week. In this episode, which is part one, we are going to hear from the experts on the significance of Black Lives Matter and the ongoing fight for equity and equality in the United States. My name is James Simmons, I use he, him pronouns, and I am the Deputy Press Secretary with Progress Iowa, and I am so honored to be the host of What A Week podcast. The Significance of Black Lives Matter Forum was hosted by the University of Northern Iowa's Women's and Gender Studies program and featured two amazing speakers. The first, Dr. Reverend Belinda Creighton-Smith, who's a professor at UNI and a pastor at the Faith Temple American Baptist Church. It also featured Joyce Levingston, who sits on the College of Education Advisory Board for the University of Northern Iowa and Upper Iowa University. This forum was recorded live on February 7th, 2022 at the University of Northern Iowa's campus. This audio includes the discussion led by Dr. Reverend Creighton Smith and Joyce Levingston, as well as questions and reactions from the audience. This forum was recorded by one of Progress Iowa's organizers, Sam Blatt, and I'm so thankful that she was able to go and capture that night on recording because it's such an important discussion that we can finally share with all of you. So without further ado, I'm going to turn this podcast over to the Significance of Black Lives Matter Forum experts. Believe me, you want to be black, <laughs> right? Um, 
because in acknowledging that individuals don't believe it, says that systemically there are some differences and some disparities. There are, of course, overrepresentation in the wrong area, underrepresentation in, in where it should be, right? And so we're going to talk a little bit about why Black Lives Matter and the significance of uh, raising, elevating to an equal status or a status of human beings of uh, people of African descent and of Black Americans. Yes, um, and just to echo that, uh, me and Dr. Reverend Melinda Crane Smith were just having a conversation. Well, we have these conversations all the time, right? Um, but just last weekend, I came into town, and I actually don't live here anymore, so um, that's an old title uh, that was read. But I, I used to be the director for um, One City Momentum, but now I'm in Des Moines as a senior program director. Um, but I was just here in town. I grew up in Cedar Falls. I went to UNI, um, two-time graduate, you know, been in this community all my life. So, um, but came in for a celebration and left just being racially traumatized just by stopping at the shoe store to purchase some Birkenstocks for my little spoiled 16-year-old daughter, right? Um, the cashier told me that I had the black-white children of uh, Cedar Falls in Des Moines because we moved. And I asked her, what did she mean? And she... So that everyone can understand. I don't know if they understood that. Yes. So the cashier said, you have the black-white children of Cedar Falls in Des Moines. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, your children are black and they grew up in Cedar Falls. So they're actually kind of white. And then you took them to Des Moines where it's diverse. So they're not used to that. So they're actually black, white, and now they're in the moon. So in my mind, and I, and I automatically text my pastor, and I told her, like, you got my bond money or what's going on? Like, I, I was just trying to enjoy my daughter's sweet 16th birthday party. And here I am. I don't want to spend my money there. I, I was just absolutely blown away. So when we talk about being black, right, it's a Saturday afternoon. I'm just trying to chill, mind my business, but I can't even be black and buy Birkenstock, okay? Um, so we talk about this type of heaviness, this type of weight that's really unfathomable that we carry around all the time. And when I say that I have two degrees from you and I'm finishing my last one here. So I've actually been on you and I campus a total of eight to 10 years. So most of my racial trauma, just to let y'all know, since y'all dwell on this camp campus, has happened on UNI campus. Mm -hmm. It's those little comments that happen at the register yeah. that will happen in the classroom. Yeah. And they happen in front of professors that don't know how to, they don't know what to do. So yeah. we just carry on. Yeah. Okay, and then I carry that home with me, or I carry that into Dr. Creighton Smith's yeah. office, right? And also, too, just side note, I know we're about to get started, but still, just a side note, when you see Dr. Creighton Smith or Dr. Reverend Belinda Creighton Smith, also, too, put some respect on it because she did work very hard to get her doctorate degree. And oftentimes, we get comfortable when we're talking to black women or talking about black women, and we like to call her what we feel comfortable with. Maybe it's Belinda or Dr. Belinda or Reverend or just... 
pastor, and since uh, December of 2019, okay, this is Dr. Reverend Melinda Creighton Smith, so this side note on that, but the significance of black lives, but yeah. this is something that we yeah. talked about. Well, this, this, for example, my dissertation. My dissertation looked at the ways in which um, African-American students attended predominantly white institutions are traumatized by experience of racial trauma, yeah. experience discrimination, uh, not only in the classroom, but as they move about it on, on certain campuses, right, across the, the, mid, the Midwest. And so every time the students would say to me that they would encounter uh, these kind of microaggressions or micro-assaults or micro-insults, right, in the classroom during a time where their sensitivities are heightened because they're talking about race, right? Mm -hmm. And as they're talking about race, then someone will make a comment that nearly devastates them. One student said uh, from one of the interviews that I did, she said, I did not come to class for two weeks. Mm -hmm. She said, I, I, it wasn't until the instructor reached out to me and asked me, where are you? that I was able to tell her what happened in our small group. So this is happening, it's real, and we know from research, right, that the disparate life outcomes, the poor health, right, the way in which African Americans and, and, and black and indigenous people of color experience cardiovascular disease, coronary artery disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, kidney failure, uh, cancer, et cetera, et cetera, when you control for all of the socioeconomic factors, when you control for everything, education, when you control for everything, where they live, when you control for all of those things, you will still find that African Americans and people of color are, are experienced worse life outcomes on every social industry. And that's hard for people to fathom, but that's the truth. Yeah. So, the significance of Black Lives Matter. Now, the movement, Black Lives Matter, for a lot of folks, they think it started in 2020, um, when it actually didn't, right? It didn't start with the conviction or the, or, um, the uh, acquittal of George Zimmerman in 2013. <laughs> The civil rights movement and early movements and uh, rising up against our oppressors, our oppressors have started from the moment we touched the soil. So we do want to make sure that we're paying homage and letting folks know and understand that, um, you know, we have actually been uprising against those who have been attempting to oppress us or who have been oppressing us from day one. Yeah. Um, so even from the moment that we were, you know, Unchained. There were folks that were already plotting and having conversations, and uh, I, I'm guessing I imagine made up some fake language. I know me and my sister used to speak pig Latin when we were younger. It's name on the or whatever, like our Mayan king, right? We were doing this as children, so I'm imagining that they had already had some type of plan for when they got over here and started executing that right away. Yeah. Um, major movements that I remember, even in my childhood growing up, like I said, in Cedar Falls, we were very limited, but the Underground Railroad, if we think about those major movements, um, that is one of them that I think about from way back even in the slave yeah. yeah. And And in all of those movements, 
Um, you probably know Harry the Tubman, right? But there are a host of others. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't watched the movie uh, Harry Tubman, you need to. I'm wrong, Harry. You need to. It's an excellent, uh, I think, depiction of what was going on. Uh, but we, we know that in those movements, even in the ones before Underground Railroad, like Bacon's Rebellion, right? In all of those movements, allies came alongside. Okay, so you also see allies coming alongside in the movement too, willing to die as well when they knew that an individual would be tra being treated less than human. Okay, so I want to also throw that out there so that each of us will know our responsibility and our obligation, okay, to make America a place where everyone's human and no one's treated less than human, regardless of the amount of melanin in their, in their skin or the country from which they come. Yes, yes. Um, and okay, so the founders of the actual Black Lives Matter movement, um, Alicia Garza, Patrice Pollard, and Opa Kometi. Um, we have a slide just kind of highlighting um, each individual. We know that the media tries to portray um, them always in a negative light, always tries to paint them as Mark Marxist, and always tries to basically put them down, trying to say they're always scamming or in some kind of scandal. Well, we wanted to highlight um, each one of them today. So you actually kind of have some background and information on them if you uh, didn't already. So Alicia Garza, she's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Um, she's also an artist. She is a published author, a writer, um, also the co-founder of Supermajority. Um, co-founded Black Future Lab, which focuses on um, politics in the black community, um, which is, which we know is absolutely necessary. Um, and then also studied in um, high degrees from University of California, San Diego in anthropology and sociology. Um, Patrice Kohler, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, activist just like Alicia too, um, is a published author, writer as well, an artist as well. Um, got her degree in religion and philosophy from UCLA. Also went on to get an art degree from um, Ruski School of Art in Southern California. And Opo Tometi, also one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, an activist just like the other two, published author as well, just like the other two. Um, has degrees from University of Arizona and Arizona State. Also, she was the co-director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration um, for many years too, um, which also, uh, and just to let y'all know too, um, it's a couple of these individuals too also identify as queer. So we talk about um, and especially more so where I work in Des Moines, um, we conversate and have these conversations on, seems like to be this war of who suffered more or um, who are we going to support more, or what rights we're going to support more. So we did want to talk about the 13 guiding principles of Black Lives Matter. Folks feel like they can get behind this movement, but not this one, and support LGBTQ plus rights or women's rights. and. Um, just wanted to focus on um, the guiding principles of Black Lives Matter are actually everything that I feel like we are constantly focusing on for everyone 
Um, so restorative justice, empathy, um, loving engagement, trans affirming, um, intergenerational, uh, black families, um, black women, diversity, globalism, queer affirming, collective values, black village, and unapologetically black. And for me, I don't see anything wrong with any of these guiding principles um, at all. And if it, I feel like if an individual sees anything wrong with any of these guiding principles, if you, um, well, like we talk about, if you take off the word black and you replace it with LGBTQ+, plus, or uh, if you replace it with folks who are maybe in um, drug treatment or folks in poverty or something, then it's okay. But the problem is, is that not everybody can relate to the word black. Mm -hmm. And that is where it becomes such a huge problem. And that is what people are hyper aware of. And that is a trigger for individuals when they feel like they don't have space mm -hmm. in the room or they have to be quiet and they're not used to having that because they're so used to the privilege that the world has given them. Mm -hmm. So. And, and heard a lot about fragility, you heard a lot about, you know, Robin Nandos that's talking about it. Um, but I want to kind of talk a little bit about that whole idea of, of what it means to be black and how it creates this sense of, of hypersensitivity, possibly uh, anxiety, anxious fear, right? What's getting ready to happen next? Wilkerson does a really good job in the book text. Uh, I know it was a, a Campus read. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. If you haven't, I would suggest, recommend that you do so. But she talks about how uh, when that word is raised, that people begin to uh, consider possibly the role that ancestors played, right, in the oppression, and then automatically the automatic response is guilt. And she says, so that as African-Americans, and I'm not what Nelson was Wilkerson that said this, but as African-Americans, black individuals, black Americans are navigating their way through society. You know, it was Michael Eric Dyson that said that, sorry. <laughs> he says, as uh, African-Americans and black Americans are navigating their way through society, they are a constant reminder. They're a constant reminder of the 1619 policy. They're a constant reminder of the middle passage. They're a constant reminder of, right, colonization. They're a constant reminder, and because of that constant reminder, the disdain is associated with the guilt that's associated with past atrocities. okay? So that we, but I, 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 I say that it's, it's necessary, imperative, that we become uh, comfortable with that word, right? And that we begin to, uh, rather than to see, because even in the dictionary, what, how is it defined? How a group, you could probably tell us, how is black defined in the dictionary? Anyone? The color. It's a color. It's what? The point Dark. Evil. Mm. Absence of light, right? For those of you who know our faith tradition, if something has the, is the absence of light, you know what that means, right? <laughs> okay, so those are the adjectives or the descriptors used to define black, okay? So all of those things, even though it seems like they're not important, we don't pay attention to it, subconsciously, they impact us. Socially, we're abiding by those rules. Socially, that is the way, right, folks are navigating through society, 
believing and hope. And we also know that it was a part of the plan to divide individuals who were poor, right? So that the wealthy elite, right, could control what was happening all around them and maintain the power, the wealth, and the resources, as well as the man power, woman power, person power that they wanted. And we, um, oh man, we also talked about what has happened um, just with the word black over the last two years, right? How folks have literally, well, for one, just the laws that have been passed um, right underneath our feet, even House File 802, just so many things that folks are associating everything with um, the word black or trying to, I mean, just even critical race theory. I mean, Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, even those two things are absolutely, completely separate things, but folks are trying to like bundle them together. Um, Anything that just, I mean, it it is absolutely mind-boggling. And if you're black, you can talk about it, and you do talk about it most likely all day long. Um, I have seen uh, many of my white counterparts, so much so that I just took myself off of social media because it's actually disgusting and repulsive to see how folks are comfortable. The same folks that sent me messages um, uh, May 2020, my guidance counselors from junior high school, my teachers from elementary school, like folks I haven't talked to since I was seven, sending me messages apologizing because they knew the stuff that was going on when we were growing up in this community, I grew up here in Cedar Falls. I've never lived anywhere else except Cedar Falls. These things were going on and they were wrong and they knew that. And they sent apologies because they seen George Floyd get murdered. But then a year later, they're posting All Lives Matter and stuff like this. But at that moment when it clicked, they thought about me and thought to reach out to me. My professors that emailed me for weeks asking me, all my Caucasian friends who sent just money or just odd things, so many odd things happened, <laughs> and then they just stopped. Yeah. But you know, folks wanted access to me and I cut that off because yeah. I know I'm a wealth of knowledge and everything that comes with it, and guess yeah. what? You don't have access to me no more. Yeah. Folks, I know certain people have Pastor uh, Reverend Dr. Belinda K. Smith has access to me. Dr. Dapperdale has access to me. Sam has access to me. It's certain folks, you have to make the effort now to get, you know, some of this because I've restricted myself from that. I don't just put the platform up for folks. And it's hard not to because we do, we were having some good engaging conversations, but folks were getting too much out of me. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's too try. It wears you down. It does. It's, yeah. It does. And yeah. I've taken over a year break now, and feels good. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I just have a question yeah. about um, the taking things out of you. Was it like maybe frustration from giving so much, but like you don't feel like there's like anything reciprocal happening? Like they give you the same thing? Um, or is it more like so too much to give, and it's like like when will it end? Like when will they go? Well, here's the thing. I just feel like I'm. I just felt like for me and like my Facebook page is just a huge resource. Mm-hmm. 
It's just a huge wealth of knowledge. It's just a place that folks could go. I allowed for a lot of conversation. I brought a lot of uh, conversations that needed to be happening in the community. Um, and it's just like, if folks want to really be about that, they're going to be about it, and they're going to be about it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, don't, I didn't have to provide that anymore. And maybe if I want to one day, maybe I will, but I don't need to. I don't need to be waking up at 6 o'clock scrolling, and I don't need to, I would have put that, what happened last weekend, right on there, and old girl wouldn't even have you about to lose your job. She wouldn't even be yeah. working. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, and, you know, I told Pastor about it, I told Sam about it, and, you know, it, it was hot. Even coming in, driving past on the highway today, I told my God, I said, give me them sandals back because I want to take them back. But, you know, <laughs> you know I mean, I, I'm still staying focused, and it's like, here's the thing. Is it her fault, or is it the, is it Cedar Falls? Yeah. Is it the hegemonies that are in place yeah. that folks refuse yeah. to disrupt? Yeah. This is a good town. This is a good place to grow and raise a family. For who? Because yeah. I was raising my kids here, and now they're the black, white kids in Des Moines. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is, this is the reality of it. You know? What makes you think that was okay to say out loud, but who's thinking that? Because I kind of knew what she was talking about. You know? And not only that, that's what you think about me because I grew up here and I know that. And I know how to use my way of power and privilege, my voice, the way I speak. I can throw on a UNI t-shirt to go look at a house around here, tell them I went to UNI, get the crib I want. You know what I'm saying? I know how to maneuver and stuff like that, but it's sickening, you know. I mean, I remember even before I moved, I was taking my white girlfriends with me to go look at houses and say, hey, talk about how we be doing research in grad school. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Make sure you got on your UNI hoodie, like, because I want to go look at nice stuff that I done worked my butt off for, for my children. No, I'm just going to uproot myself from the community. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I might do did those uh, teachers' counselors, whatever, from Cedar Falls, from your childhood, reach out to you when they apologized? Did they, did they say they knew what was happening at the time, or they didn't understand it until later? They were saying that they, they wish they, they, uh, they would have done something back then. But here's the thing about me, too. The story is a little bit deeper. I had a, a science teacher. I went to Pete Junior High. My science teacher, part of being black is that we're talkative. That's why I'm like watching the time. And we just characteristics of being black is we're talkative. Our children are talkative. I was talkative. She pulled me out in the hall. I was the only black student. And she said, I know you're never going to be shit in life, but the rest of these kids have a chance to learn. And you talking is disrupting their opportunity to learn. I was in eighth grade. I was 14. And I was in shock when she said that. I've never had a, for one, an adult other than my parents cuss at me before. And so I stopped crying. And when I tell you I birthed my first child a year later, it affected my life. Yeah. I didn't go to high school. I now had a baby. I was too dumb. I wasn't going to be nothing. Whoopie whoop. So, I mean, it, it was, it's those types of, this happened here. I yeah. Yeah. And she's still teaching. Yeah. I was seeing her at Walmart and it took everything in me not.
not to go up to her and just be like, hey, I have these degrees. Like, who cares? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, the damage was already done. Like, I carried that along, you know? And, and, and it happens more often than not. We all, we think that that's an exception, but it's not. It's the rule. Um, it's the rule from, from a teacher saying, no, dear, why don't you? I, I want to be a lawyer. No, dear, no, no. Why don't you be a secretary? Yeah. Okay. So it, 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 it's more of a rule than it is the exception. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So last words. Yes, last words. We're, we are talking about police brutality now. So, some last words. And when I was looking at these, I couldn't help but to think of, um, well, for one, I, my, being a mother and having children. I have a daughter in college now that lives on you and I campus, right? I have two children that go to high school in Des Moines, right? And I have a son that is coming up um, and about to be in junior high school. This mom I'm going to college, 23 years old. I'm 20 year old, 22 years old. It's not real. But I think about the, just even how they were, you know, probably just dismayed. At, at what was happening at that moment, how they even looked at their wounds and, and said, it's not even real. What just happened to them? And then I can, I, there is a, um, so I have so many personal stories that I could share, but I want to share this one. Um, you and I uh, did an amazing job with the Michael Brown um, story. Um, and I went to the interpreter there, interpreter there in August. Get out of the car, get it, put your hands 
car. He's like, what? What are you doing? Put your hands on the car. And so he puts his hands on the car. I said, wait a minute, what are you doing? We're going to search you. No, you're not going to search me. Yeah, he says, you're not. What are you, what are you thinking? Well, there was a black man meeting, right, that met your, uh, uh, what is it called? Make description, thank you. Uh, that robbed someone, okay? And so he says that one of the officers knew him. And the officer said, that's not him. But the other officers didn't know him. And they were, and they were persistent. No, he's going to put his hands on the hood. We're going to search him or we're going to arrest him. Finally, the officer that knew him just stepped in front of him and said, no, you're not. I know him. Did they not read his shirt? Did they not see the things in his hands? Did they not have a better description than the black man, black male? Um, and so that's why we're saying these kinds of things, these, these micro assaults every day, whether we are in white spaces or not even, as the television oftentimes or social media computer oftentimes has its way of penetrating the heart and the soul and the things that it says or the things that people have the audacity to say that causes harm um, all day, every day. And then the ignorance too, because I mean, Representative Smith went to NU, right? So he would be one of the black white kids, but not the officers that's in there, you know? So folks may have that perception and it doesn't carry over anywhere. So don't even have that perception. No, very black, very black. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but a 16 year old, don't let me die. I don't have a gun, stop shooting. That's Michael Brown. I love you too, Sean Bell. Killed on his wedding day. Yeah. Officers, why do you have your guns out? 66 years old. What are you following me for? Trayvon Martin. And I can't breathe, George Floyd. George Floyd Jr. Um, now this one really rattled and struck the nation, although we have seen Eric on Gardner. TV, yes. yes, Eric Gardner's last words were, I can't breathe, before Definitely. George Floyd. Definitely. This one struck the nation, however, and I think so, because it was in color. Yeah. I think that when we see folks getting sprayed down by the hose and stuff, and we see even uh, like Martin Luther King March and stuff like that, they try to put it in black and white so they think it's a long time ago, but when I look at my mother, and sometimes I'll be sending pastor pictures of my mom, my mom is young, yeah. Yeah. and this in the same age as pastor is young, pastor be up and down and everything. So these, this, this is not a long time ago, but folks will try to uh, be persuasive with racism, even in pictures, even in showing things in black and white, but we saw it in color, we saw it a lot, we saw it film and it, and it shook um, the nation in a different way. Yeah. I happen to be researching the most common words that folks speak before they die. Mm-hmm. What are the most common things or phrases or what is the most common word spoken before one dies? Mm-hmm. And that answer was mama. Yeah. Okay. And that's something that 
George Floyd yelled out right before he died because he knew he was going to meet his maker. He knew there was no way he was going to escape what was happening to him. As a grown man in that situation, as a grown man who had children in that situation, he would have never yelled out for his mother if he knew he wasn't near death, but he knew he was near death. And I, I think that is the reason why he howled out for his mom. And so even with that, <laughs> we do want to talk about even say her name. Because George Floyd in the year 2020 blew up big, right? But Breonna Taylor should have been just as big. Right. And we dropped the ball. Yeah. Yeah. We dropped the ball. As we always do. That's why the Sanford Land. With black, black women. Yeah. We dropped the ball regularly. Yeah. Um, so we do have a video clip. Do you want to explain this real quick? Or do you, should we just play the clip real quick? It's a minute. And okay. Yeah. Let's okay. Just do a really it's just a minute. Here we had a small break in the recording, but please go ahead and continue listening as we continue on with the forum. So the police in that vicinity comes and 
Derek, being afraid of fleas, he starts to run. As he runs, um, the police officer shoots him first in the back of the leg, he drops to his knees, and then shoots him in the back of the head as he was running. Now, go back to the other slide. These young men robbed the bank in Maynard, Iowa. Remember the story, anyone? Maynard, Iowa. Um, they, the police, they took the police on a, a chase, right? Uh, driving through, speeding through, they got out in some kind of field, cornfield possibly, and had a shootout with the police, okay? The sh two of the sheriffs were injured. One was injured pretty badly. I don't believe he returned to work after the injury, but it, it, you can always Google it and see it. Um, however, they weren't injured, nor were they killed, which is a good thing, right? Because uh, I think you didn't want Derek killed either. And they were facing officers, not running from them. Okay, so just think about that. When black lives matter, everyone's life will matter. It's, it's like when the civil rights uh, law was passed where folks could not be discriminated against with housing and jobs and et cetera. Uh, white women benefited from that big time, right? So when, when Black Lives Matter, when we truly try to uh, elevate the status of black bodies to an equal status with all other bodies, when we elevate the status of black humanity to the place where black bodies are considered human, right, possibly even considered a grandmother or grandfather or sister or brother could potentially be, right, then all lives will matter. I don't even think we have that, the 5%, or it would, the power that three men hold 50% of this country's wealth, the bottom 50%, up, you know, that, that more than the bottom 50% hold in this country. I don't think we have those kind of issues if black lives matter, because all lives would matter. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I had seen something on the news that, um, and, you know, I'm, I don't really care, like, okay, who's picking for what, um, or I guess I do care, but someone had made a comment, and what, it was one of the governors, I was like, so, since Biden, it's not fair that he chose a black woman, because he just said, forget all the rest of qualified, and I'm like, like y'all did for the last however many years, like, we forget all the qualified yeah. black women, because there's never been a black woman, and there's been qualified black women every single year. Yeah. So, you know, hold tight, um, it's going to be okay. But I think Pastor, um, and I hopefully throughout our conversation, we have highlighted the injustices, not just with police brutality, but we could go through all of these sections and you will always find the same thing that we have stated as hard to fathom for folks, which is the disproportionality in all of these sections, right? We could break it down to whatever, yeah. uh, and, and folks always try to flip it, spin it, twist it, but, um, you know, numbers don't lie, right. um, and it, it, it will always be uncovered, even if it takes a pandemic to uncover the food insecurity, That's the right. health care, the schools, right. yeah. the community, the politics, yeah. the voting rights, whatever, yeah. it still will be um, in, in the <coughs> long standing. So this isn't anything new. This is just 
think that we need to be able to have the conversations, but it's so hard when there's so many, um, well, when there's few of us at the table, you know, so I don't know. And the fear, even though it's not fear, but it's an anxiety or something that's associated with having to talk about these things. Yes. Um, And I I work with my students on that, and we talk about what that feels like so that we can get through it and then get to work. And then if if necessary, if necessary, use it to empathize with what's going on with black and brown bodies uh, in our our society. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, and... We did have a slide like how can we help today? I just want to keep in I just want y'all to take away one thing and keep in mind one thing. Um, I don't know if anyone's able to make it through college without working. If you are, I mean that's like pretty cool and amazing. However, just keep in mind whatever board you sit on, um, wherever you work. Think about the hierarchy and the dynamics of that. And I'm not talking about going as a woman and think about. how it is, like the gender. I'm talking about like diversity, like really think about it. And then also too, I'm going to ask that you even think about colorism too, yeah. because you might see some like light skinned Latino males, or you might see some like light skinned Asian folks or something. You might just see some light skinned folks, and you don't know what they are, but you're like, well, they're minority, so they count. That doesn't count. You need to take into consider color uh, colorism That's right. too. So I don't know what it looks like at your job, but my job, it's like all the black people that are down here, they're facilitating, right? Then we got program managers, right? So the facilitators, they get paid the least. They're all black and brown. The program managers, they're all white. They make more than the black and brown people. Then you got us, the senior leadership team. You got me, and then the rest of them is white. And then you have our executive director, she's white. Then you have our board of directors. They're all white, and then we have four black women that came on last year, all at the same time, which just speaks volumes to what's happening. So, if any of the people at the quote-unquote bottom of that pyramid, the hierarchy, have any issues, where are they going to come to? They're going to come to me. But me, I ain't got nobody to go to to be like, hey, girl. It's shut the door. So I gotta carry all of my stuff and then all of their stuff and I have nowhere to dump my stuff because I'm not on campus anymore. And so when I do or if I did want to try to go, I would need to think really hard. Yeah. You know. Do I need to pay my rent on the first? Or do I how can I be strategic? How can I organize? The white folks on the board that's claiming they allies and or, or will they organize against me? Right. How can I organize the four black women on the board? Mm-hmm. Or, or yeah. will they organize against me? It's, it's, it's always, yeah. you know, and that is the significance of even being black. But how yeah. do I support them also in my role yeah. and in their role? Yeah. And, and you bring up the point, how do you support students? Yeah. Because for... Black and brown students, being a, a, a student at UNI is way different than it is for your white peers. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different game. Taking the test, whole different game. It has nothing to do with cognitive or uh, academic ability. It has everything to do with the environment and the stresses that they carry day to day. To walk in a classroom, be the only 
person of color, or the only one of two people of color in a, in a massive classroom of, of, of white individuals makes that a very different environment for them. And, and that's something that is important for teachers, you know, instructors to consider. Because that classroom, that, that college experience is very different. There's a whole lot of tests that they're taking that the other students are taking. There's a whole lot of challenges that they're overcoming that other students are, don't have to overcome. That's in addition to lit life as well, right? Yeah. The kinds of stuff that happens in the life of a, of a student, right? Family sickness, a different kind of thing. It ha that happens too, in addition to having to navigate predominantly white spaces. So, important gem for you to hold on to as well. So, how to be an ally? Well, we, we, the march in Waterloo um, was one of the most heartening things that happened um, since the marches of civil rights marches at Logan Plaza in Waterloo in the 1970s. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a time when allies came around and we marched over the bridge from Lincoln Park across the and was and was I can't breathe and Black Lives Matter and just sensing that energy, that that synergy, right, that was happening within that space was amazing. And it was like, why can't we just be here every day? Yeah. Every day. And it behooves us to try to work towards that kind of uh, oneness in this movement in order to make a change before it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. So we yeah we looked at some ways. I would definitely always advocate for uh, reparations for Black folks. Everyone else got them except us. So that's always like something I would speak for. Um, definitely get on uh, local folks. There's a lot of local groups around here, or a lot of local people that are pushing for change. Um, for one, you can always ask Dr. Creighton Smith. She's always doing something in her classes every semester. We do have Sam Black here. She is definitely a force in the community. She is focusing on a lot of stuff, tenant rights. Um, Sam can even give you a big feel. Also, Black Lives Matter organizer, organizer too. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yep, yep. So. Get on like email list because sometimes we just need folks to show up. Like it's, sometimes that that speaks volumes, especially in a courtroom, especially yeah. at a, a meeting, especially at a school board meeting, yeah. human rights commission meeting. Like, um, yeah. And then also self educate and tell your friends. Like, don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> Figure it out. Yeah. If you can get a degree, or if you can be on campus, or if you can figure out how to do a tic tac or TikTok or whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You figure out how to use the iPhone or something. Yeah. Educate yourself and then tell your friends about it. So, yes. I feel like also a really good way to like um, call out like with like passive microaggressions that we have is to call them out in the culture. So the main thing is like why the ignorance is so prevalent because really they just don't know because they never had to see it from our point of view. And from our point of view is like you should know because you're the one doing it to me. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking like your stories of how you're growing up as like the black white kid. I can relate to that. Like I can talk from both like sides, like yeah. black mm -hmm. and white kids, that like intersection. And, but especially from like white people, it's um, weird that they would like recognize that as well. Because mm -hmm. like you still think it's black, but then you're calling me something different. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering like if we could call out like the cultures in schools too. Because I think yeah. I'm not a little. Yeah. 
But I do know that there's a big difference in why we west, which I believe why we west is what they consider to be more preppy, and why we east is what they see, or mm -hmm. if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's right. No, black, yeah, 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 right. And like, I went to Waterloo East for the Catholic meeting, and I was so like surprised by East because I didn't know it was like a real like it looked a lot different from my school. It looked more ancient, but like in a good way to me. Like, it looked mm -hmm. nice. But then they had like this sign that said welcome in so many other languages. And I haven't been to Waterloo West, so I even saw um, welcome in my language where my parents are from. So that in those like lower income schools, they have so much more diversity, even just among minorities that people take for granted. Mm -hmm. And they always make a push to go to Waterloo West because have the better things. But the thing is, they should both be of equal status. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was 
mean, hey, what have you got in your bag? And he says, well, I'll also break my wallet some mathematics. <laughs> no guns pulled out, right. not right. on the ground, face down. You know.